before we get started, I just want to make a reminder to everybody that the information uh, discussed today is not to be interpreted or construed as investment advice. Everyone's financial situation, goals, and objectives are different. Please consult investment advice. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode nine. Uh, as always, we are with uh, the legendary Keith Dicker with no heat in his home in his Patagucci jacket, vice cap asset management. Welcome back, Keith. And Rich, uh, I don't know, Rich, just Rich with Acorn Hi. Macro Research. Uh, yeah, welcome back to the show, guys. Hey, guys. It's a great... Uh, I, I think one thing we got to start with, first of all, we had a big snow day in Halifax. So it's, it's always lots of fun. First one of the year. Uh, I think the second big thing we need to talk about, or at least mention it, and this is something that, you know, the Bank of Canada has not announced or discussed. The big banks are certainly not touch it. I don't think the mainstream media are touching it as well. So, but I think every Canadian across the country has looked at it this week. And you guys don't know what I'm going to say, do you? You're sort of guessing right now. <laughs> I'm pinching the rules here. No, of course. What I'm talking about, of course, is the uh, the Bieber balls. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was going to guess that. It's Tim Biebs. The Tim Bieber balls. I just think it's. Uh, We're apparently giving someone, a someone, plug. someone like a lead. Someone it's like a lead balloon, to... a lead balloon going over your head. So any... <laughs> Someone was reselling the Tim Biebs' box on like eBay for like thousands of bucks or something. Oh, and I boy, said boy. you could get a lot more if you NFT that Tim Biebs box. Yeah, probably. Maybe so. Speak... But it was yeah, uh, my kids much. were just howling with laughter over the the Bieber balls. Are they good? Well, some are nutty, some are salty, some are sweet. But... Yeah, what else is going on here? I got a different background. If anyone has asked, I'm in uh, Vegas at uh, Keith's going to hate this at a crypto conference. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's funny. Someone was asking, oh, I, cause people say, well, where are you? I'm in Vegas. Oh, you're going to have an awesome time, you know, go party, strip clubs. And I said, no, no, I'm actually just at the, uh, I'm at a nerd convention here at a cryptocurrency conference. So that usually shuts the conversation down pretty quick. But How's uh, life be, without a mask? The, they're masked up here inside, inside the casinos. And, and yeah, it's kind of weird. But it's funny because there's actually, uh, there's a Texas rodeo show here in town. And so obviously they're all wearing <laughs> cowboy hats and refuse to wear masks. Um, okay. So the mask mandate is very loose here. Let's put it that way. Okay. Very non-compliant. Right. The, Amer the good old Americans. Um but yeah, I wanted to touch on this week, maybe just sort of frame it up because we had, uh, you know, an announcement, Keith, uh, which we'll tuck on here, but we, we had an announcement from the Bank of Canada, just sort of an update, um, you know, on, on interest rates. So they, they kept interest rates pinned uh, at zero here, basically kind of pushing back. They said their first rate hike wouldn't come until the, they still said mid second quarters of 2022 so they're really pushing back because like the markets are pricing in obviously rate hikes as soon as you know january i think there was 25 percent odds of them even moving here in december so they kind of poo-pooed that um and at the same time now they're using which we're going to get into is they in the report they are using you know the omicron variant 
uh, or whatever variant you want to call it these days. And of course, the floods in BC, which we've talked about here in the Looney Hour, which we also talked about and said that they would probably use this as air cover. So it's funny to see them coming out, uh, you know, three, three, four weeks later uh, with that. So Keith, I don't know if you want to take it away first. Yeah, I mean, this is something we've been tracking now for a few uh, episodes and, and weeks. So, uh, you know, just a reminder, like a few weeks ago, one of the big banks was calling for eight hikes. And then we sort of said, maybe that likely won't happen. But again, what, what's really interesting over the last few days is that a lot of major central banks, they've all, they haven't turned dovish, but they're giving cover or providing cover to become less hawkish. So um, even with the Bank of Canada this week, you know, they're, you know, they were less hawkish with the words that they used in their, in their statement. Same thing with the Bank of England is happening. Uh, Norway, I think, is coming out tomorrow, I think it is. Um, but it, again, it's happening all over the world. And a lot of them are using, you know, the, the new variant as a reason for, um, you know, they're going to need to use a lot of stimulus going forward. We're seeing lots of new lockdowns taking place in Europe and even in the, by the way, in the UK is going crazy right now. Rich, I know you're going there in a, a few days, I think. Tomorrow. But, uh, yeah, tomorrow. But Rich uh, has his eighth booster shot. He's good. <laughs> <laughs> but if you follow even like what's happening with, you know, Boris Johnson over there, like it's, it's a real show. And um, again, like we're all, again, like we always talk about central banks they're going to talk to sound hawkish that they want to raise rates and they want to stop QE and all that stuff. And they have to, because they've, they've, they've created this, this global financial system now where everything, if you're pricing it at zero rates or negative rates or near zero fear value and everything has been distorted dramatically. So whether it's any kind of a financial market or credit spread or a housing market, it, it's impossible to try to price anything. So instead, everything is just being valued now based on capital flows. So hot money is running into this market, away from that market, and so forth. So uh, you know, maybe we can talk about these ARC funds as well. I know, I know that's something that we, we looked at a, a few days ago. I sent you guys a shot. But anyway, that's that's what I see with the central banks now. Again, I'm not going to be the least bit surprised You know, this time next year or even six months from now central banks are no longer as hawkish as, as what they said they're going to be. And, and for everyone, by the way, when we say hawkish, it means that they want to raise rates. So I, I suspect they'll be in a position where they won't be talking aggressively about raising rates. How about you, Rich? What, Rich. what have you seen in that story? Um, oh, I agree. I think sometimes th this job is really, really hard. Um, you have to predict the future and you need to sort of turn that prediction into some cash or returns for your investors or um, alternatively try to avoid those risks. And sometimes it's really easy. <laughs> and I think this is one of those things that I think was really easy. I think um, it was telegraphed in a way. We knew the we knew some, anybody who understands even a little bit of um, virology or anything about viruses, or if you've, I've read a book about the 1919 Spanish flu, um, or if you watched enough YouTube videos of people who are really plugged in and understand this kind of thing, you understand there's always variants. In fact, I think there's like 3000 different types of genomes. So apart from the variants, for example, you've got 3000 different types of kind of like offshoots off the branch, you know, you've got little twigs of different types of Corona. And this happens for all kinds of stuff. Um, and in our note this past month, we wrote, um, you know, 
that the market um, sold off because of the Omicron variant. But the snapback sort of speaks to the fact that the market's digested this in the sense that it's here for good, folks. I think we should all sort of get used to it. Um, coronavirus is not going anywhere. It's now, you know, the title of our note was from pandemic to endemic. Um, and I think the sooner everyone sort of kind of comes to terms with it, I think the better. Um, as far as what you said, Keith, I think it was, it's just this kind of, I'm laughing because it's just so obvious and in my view, so kind of pathetic um, that they're just using this as cover really to just avoid doing what the, the hard thing and the hard thing is exactly what you laid out, which is you cannot perpetuate this kind of money printing forever. Um, and yet no one wants to be the bad guy. Um, and ultimately, there's always negative externalities that result from this kind of unwillingness to make the adult decision. And I think, um, I think you're right. I think, um, I think that there's way too much priced into the forward overnight index swaps. That's like what the Canadian um, equivalent to the Fed fund futures forward rate. So Rich, do you know where we're at in? for Canada right now? I think you posted a chart there. But yeah, I did. I can read it if you end. give me one second. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's a wait, basically one hike six months out and then like three hikes 12 months out. Um, so we'll be yeah, 100 basis correctly. points. That's right. Yeah. We'll so, be 100 so, basis points higher in a year. Yeah. And, you know, maybe 100, like it's almost four hikes, you know, 18 months out. And I just, I think that that's just wildly optimistic um, for exactly the reasons that Keith laid out. Um, well, I also I mean, think, I, I also think, but sorry, one last thing. I think, I think, I think it's fascinating to me that the, you know, the S and P 500 is back to 4,700. And I think that that's what's different this time, you know, and, and that when we had the Delta variant, I think the market was unsure about the sort of the, the effects of a new variant on health on, you know, on the, on the market. And I think that the snapback doesn't speak to how, you know, some might disagree with me and say the snapback speaks to the fact that the Fed will be, you know, dovish for longer. I disagree. I think it's just that the market, you know, market provides information and the information is as these variants kind of mutate and go on and on, they tend to get less and less deadly and more and more contagious. Um, and that's, I know I'm not an expert there, but I just, I think it's really interesting how the market's already back to its, its sort of all-time highs. The good news is... I just want to add uh, to that as well. Um, so, I mean, I mean, I, th I think, you know, Rich, you're, you're, you're a bit more optimistic than I am on where things were going. And um, so a couple of days ago, I, I tweeted, I don't know which day it was, but but the VIX at the time was 38, 40. That's the volatility yeah, index for anyone asking. Yeah. And I, I tweeted out and uh, I said, hey, like, I forget what I said, but effectively, don't be surprised if this is back down to 20 very quickly which means that all of a sudden markets change from being from selling off to, to bouncing back very quickly. Uh, and that's where we are right now. So it was a really good opportunity on, on the trading side. So, so people don't realize what, so what the VIX, it measures volatility, specifically it measures volatility as measured in the option contracts on the S&P 500 index. Uh, typically that number will range from 10 as high as 60, but it's usually gonna plug along between 12 and 15 or 10 to 20 for a long time. And then maybe once, twice, three times every couple of years, it's going to spike up. It'll go to 40. And that's, that's an extremely high point. And uh, then it could even go up higher. But once it hit 40 a few days ago, in, in from our experience, because we, we've been doing this for a while now, you know, we, we were going to get a bounce back, you know, and I think that's what's happening right now. 
And, um, you know, we're, we're not going to be a, a surprise if we, if we start rolling over again. And uh, like another metric that we that you look at, for example, um, because we're, we see headline market indices all the time. So always good to tear them open and see what's inside. And a good way to look at what is the health of the underlying economy in the market is the performance of U.S. really uh, mid-cap, small-cap bank stocks. And, and, and that group has been rolling over over the last few weeks as well. So we're not getting a follow-through with that. We also use a couple of models that they show us the strength of the bid versus the offer for the broad market. And, and, and again, that's, that's coming back down. Uh, we have another good model we use that measures the, the, the strength of, of the trend and momentum that's happening in broad market as well. So again, like nothing is, is you know, falling off the back of the truck as of right now today, but it's nowhere near as strong as, as it was, you know, weeks and then a few months ago. And I think now what, you know, what we suggest for everyone is ignore what happened in markets from basically 2000 to most of 21, sorry, 2020 to 2021. And uh, we're in this new paradigm right now. And that's, that's where we're headed. Cause like with the whole, like the new variants of, of, of COVID that's happening, we all know what to expect in terms of, Hey, you know, this is going to continue to happen, but it's even more important to know how our government's going to react to it. And I know in this part of the country where we are, you know, it, it's the moment our, our positive counts go up and we're, we'll start heading for soft lockdowns again. And then after that, you have a hard lockdown. I don't know if it will get there, but they've been very clear where they're headed. In Europe right now, that's where they're headed. So Germany, I think, Steve, was it in Denmark? We saw that they're closing nightclubs this week. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the important message here is, again, it's not necessarily that you agree or disagree with the lockdowns and all that. I mean, I think they're kind of ridiculous at this point, but... um, it's just how governments react. And then you just have to sort of interpret, you just have to say, okay, this is how they're going to react, whether I like it or not. And then you, you just sort of, you know, place your bets accordingly. You kind of have to work with it with so that framework. So that's different though. That's what I think is different this time, right? Because over the summer or the Delta stuff, there was some real genuine concern. And I think the market reacted to that concern. Now it's a jurisdictional arbitrage that we're playing here. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, you know, it's a real politique, right? I mean, it's, you know, in the U S we're going into NFL playoffs, it's college football playoffs. We have a midterm election next year for Biden. He's down in the polls. They're never going to lock down in countries in Canada, where you effectively have (laughs) due to the parliamentary system and the way that the minority government is set up, it's an authority. They can do whatever they want. We're still in a state of emergency. There's no pushback. There's no opposition pushback. And, you know, Justin Trudeau won the election. There's not going to be a new one. So effectively, there's no kind of, um, there's no, you know, there's no, there's no room or availability for pushback, regardless of what's going on with the actual numbers. And I think that so going forward, I think the market will treat this as a jurisdictional thing, a government response rather than are are more people dying. Because just to give you an idea, the cases in the UK, I'm looking at it right now, are back to 50,000. But the daily deaths are 167. And as of yesterday, there was nobody hospitalized with the variant in, in the UK. So it's a purely, it's a, this is, a, in my view, and I don't want to get, I know we shouldn't get down this road too deeply, but it's a performative art at this stage rather than a, a genuine concern about what's going on. What do they do? They shut down the, uh, the bars there, correct? No, I mean, it's just, you, it's more about, you know, there's a work from home order. Um, right. 
and um, and you know that's and it's this Plan B thing, right? They're just trying to slow it down. But you know, the average was, for the last six months for cases has been forty thousand for the UK. So I think I was I think I was reading that they were saying uh, that it was going to knock off about two billion dollars per month on the work from just on the work from home order. Again, obviously, it's just an educated yeah. guess, but I think they're again. I just think that they're going to use it as an excuse not to not to move you know hawkish on monetary policy, but. Yeah, I think we all it's agree that way. I mean, like last night, for example, Boris Johnson say it in his exact words were, we need to have a national conversation. And what he was referring to was a having a lockdown again. So um, and again, like the, the data doesn't support it. However, you know, here, here's the prime minister, you know, one of the most important countries in the world. That's where that's where they want to go. And, you know, as, as for the US, you know, and we talked about that before as well. I mean, like Rich has some great data showing you know, U.S. economic data is, is, is pretty strong. Like, it's, there's not many, you know, people falling off here. But, um, you know, with the election, election coming up, of course, in, in, in the U.S. next year. But other countries, you know, you're, I think we're in the probability of seeing leaders of countries saying, hey, we need to be more careful again because of this new variant. It, it's going to happen. And, and that will give, again, give central banks cover to not raise rates again, which means, hey, the party goes on in, in Vancouver, in the housing oh my market God. out there. Yeah. Spe- speaking of which, so yeah, that uh, it kind of brings me to my point, because that's one of the things like I'm concerned about. So I always look at it and say, okay, you know, maybe I'm looking too, too micro here, but you know, there, there's this case for, for, you know, eight rate hikes, right, from Scotiabank or whatever. I just look at it and say, okay, if you look at Canada, like, just housing market seems to me like it's driving the majority of the growth. We've now had uh, 2020, the year 2020 was an all-time record high in, in home sales across the nation. And 2021 is going to dwarf 2020. So you've got like back-to-back years of all-time record highs in home sales. You've got national home prices up 23 plus percent this year. You know, record highs, record price growth obviously people tapping home equity lines of credit, all the spinoff spending that comes from that. And I'm just wondering, you're going to have a slowdown at some point. We've pulled a lot of forward, a lot of demand forward over the last two years. Um, I mean, I just think like, I think 2022, I think it, you know, it might be a still a strong market for housing just because of low rates, but I think we're going to have a, a slow, a pullback for sure. Um, which kind of brings me to my funny little tidbit here. Um, you know, uh, US. You mean, so if, you mean if Bieber, sorry, you mean Bieber balls. Bieber balls. Uh, my Bieber balls <laughs> comment here. If national home prices in Canada drop 30% nationally, that will bring us back to uh, price levels since that we last saw in March 2019, which everybody knows. Uh, we're still very, very high. I mean, people were calling it a bubble in March 2019. So, uh, and for reference point, you during the financial crisis, U.S. national home prices dropped 28. percent So, uh, to suggest that if Canada was to have, you know, basically a crisis on almost an equivalent scale as the U.S., uh, it, we'd still be at 2019 price levels. So, and that's not my base case, but I'm just kind of concerned about pullback in the in the housing market. Steve, I, I can't speak to the you know the housing market the way you do, and I actually really enjoy learning as much as I do from you. 
but I can speak to the um, expect inflation expectations and how that's changed materially. And so when you say, you know, there's going to be a slowdown, uh, you know, you brought forward lots of demand. I think that maybe in the past that might've been true. I would have been able to sort of, you know, agree with you, but I think what's, what is different now is that you do have that inflation expectation is, is I would argue is basically severe people. And then you say, well, Rich, why does that matter rather than the number of inflation, the actual change in prices or the change in house prices or whatever. And I think it's because it's, it's, it's a psychological change in consumer behavior that we're entering. That's something, frankly, that we haven't, you know, my generation hasn't, sorry, my generation, your generation, Steve, hasn't dealt with. I mean, you know, speaking to my mother, she's been around, she's a bit older than um, Keith, but, you know, you know, in the 80s, you expected prices to go up 20%. That was in everyone's frame of mind, everyone's frame of reference, how you perceived investments, how you perceived your savings. All of that was couched in this world. And for a long, long time, none of us had to deal with that. And for the first time, and what I would argue a generation, or maybe half a generation, you have a situation where everyone is on, in the under, within the understanding, has the understanding that prices are going to go up and they're going to go up a lot. And that changes that psychology with respect to, do you wait? Do you save? Do you bring forward that demand? Do you continue to bring forward that demand? Um, I don't know, Steve, I'm, Steve, I don't know, Keith, if you have a view on that or? Yeah, I, I can Keith, Keith's an 80s man. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Huey Lewis, the news, they were, they oh, were I love that cool. band. I know they were, they had nice hair and, and stuff. Um, but I, I agree, Rich. If so, I'm seeing it locally here, like in the housing market, people that are not in the housing market, you know, they're trying really hard to get into it. So that, that they're going to buy it, it's happening. So it's bringing forward that purchase that may have taken place in the future. So it's the exact opposite of a deflationary problem. So central banks hate deflation. And some people say, well, it's because, you know, the debt becomes more expensive to pay back and, and all that stuff. But the real challenge with deflation is, is that people postpone that that purchase. You know, why do I need to buy a house this year if it's going to be, you know, 5% lower next year? You know, why buy a new car if it's going to be cheaper, a new refrigerator and stuff like that? So we have that exact opposite problem. So, you know, the, you know, the central banks, they're they are tasked with trying to control inflation expectations. And, you know, we've talked about it a lot now that uh, whether we are right or wrong, and I think we're right, I don't think monetary policy is really going to alter inflation expectations that much, except on the housing side. So uh, and I, I think that will self-correct as we keep moving along. It's not, it's not just the consumers as well. Um, it's also businesses. So um, I'll, ha I'll share these charts. There's a consumer inflation expectation that's at a 20-year high, but it's also the business um, expectation. So businesses are now sort of, um, you know, expecting prices to rise. And then the thing that we discussed, I think, last time with Cargill and unions, whether it's the ECB, is also now people expect their wage are now expecting wages to to. They, they not only are they demanding wages, but they expect wages to rise in line with that. And the problem that central banks have, and I agree with Keith completely, they have no real power to affect this, is you start to get things a price wage spiral or wage price spiral, and they start to feed on one another. So the prices start to rise, people get, um, you get because of labor shortages, whether they're acute or demographic long-term um, labor shortages. Just, 
Yeah. Just to jump in there. Sure. Um, so, the, the, you know, someone posted this. It says the Bank of Canada continues to expect CPI inflation to remain elevated in the first half of 2022, but it will ease back towards 2% in the second half of the year. Meanwhile, uh, as you mentioned, so business owners are currently expecting to raise prices by almost 4.5% in the next year. And over half of those business owners expect to raise prices by more than 5%. Um, that's per a, a so, uh, sources. Yeah, that there. data comes from the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. I can't remember what the I stands for. It's CFIB, and they survey. They do a survey of you know thousands and thousands of businesses um, all over the country, different provinces, and they serve in service. Uh, they survey different uh, different sectors, obviously, and they ask questions about what they're going to do with wage plans, um, prices, margins, uh, activity, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's what I'll share with the listeners. Yeah, maybe I mean, uh, maybe I should raise ice cap prices. <laughs> your your management fees are going up. Yeah, two and, kind two of, and but, but in that space, though, you know, it, so investment management fees have come down dramatically over time because in Canada, used I bet you we still do have the most uh, expensive investment management fees in the world. Uh, really, the American yeah, the Americans and the Brits are quite low especially the Americans and the Aussies have come down, but the way the Canadian system is structured, there's so many hidden fees, you know, snuck in there. So um, I, I think that the opportunity to raise prices in, in my industry, I think the big banks would absolutely do it. I mean, if, if they can raise their management fee by a few basis points, they, they will do it. I mean, these guys are vote like they'll still, charge the grandmother for a tea bag, right? In the morning, still, if they think needs you still 10 bucks to trade a stock in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Canadians Meanwhile, get, they're, Canadians. They're, they're, they're routing your trade somewhere else and making money off that at the same time and, oh, and lending it out. There's a lot of things going on. I mean, but there are pockets so that can't raise prices. I mean, that is, that's, that is a comment. I mean, it's kind of interesting because I think people are going to, you know, hear this conversation and say, well, I'm a little bit confused because you guys are at the beginning of the show saying, well, you know, the Bank of Canada can't really, they're trying to delay rate hikes. They're probably not going to get nearly close to what the markets are expecting. But meanwhile, we're talking about, uh, you know, consumer and business inflation expectations, uh, you know, running well above long-term normal ranges. And so we're kind of like dancing with this um, delicate situation of do consumer inflation expectations continue to rise and does that sort of force the bank's hand or do they just come in with some, again, some sort of yield curve control or something like that? Can I take this one? He's not impressed. Go ahead. I just think no. The bank has demonstrated it's no longer independent. And when and how can I be so certain of something like that? They've absorbed ninety percent of the bond issue from the federal government, with um and with basically no strings attached. And so why does that matter? It's because now that we they've sort of quasi given up their independence. Um, and I know I'm being pretty harsh with that language. But they're unwilling, as political animals, they're unwilling to face the pain necessary to, to, to bring things back to normal. And that's, I think that that's where you can square the circle. I don't know, Keith, if you have to view on that. Well, I, th- I think it sort of leads in. So that's right, Rich. And, and see, we talked about it earlier as well. You know, the, it's likely that the Bank of Canada's mandate is changing, you know, the yeah. next oh, yeah. 
few hours or days or weeks, whatever it's going to be. Next couple of days, apparently. <clears throat> and this change, like they'll, it'll be positioned as it's, you know, it's reflected changing times to, to, you know, to give them more tools, you know, or, or opportunities to express their skill set and, and stuff like that. But it, it's absolutely what you say, Rich, the, the new changes to the Bank of Canada's mandate is not to benefit the Bank of Canada or monetary policy is to benefit the, the fiscal side of the equation, right? So they're, they're going to give the Bank of Canada more things they can do to make it easier and easier for Ottawa and then trickle down to the provinces as well, you know, to, to increasingly borrow more money. And, you know, the, the, the challenge with this right now is that, you know, and maybe it's not fair to say, but there's a very high percentage of Canadians they have no idea what the deficit is. They have no idea what the average interest rate is on, on the debt that, that's outstanding right now. They don't know what is the sensitivity if rates go up, how is that going to affect things? And so, for example, we had a balanced budget not too many years ago in Canada at the federal level. And then it snuck down like probably $5 billion deficit and then maybe 15 or 20. You know, we had $400 billion during the 2020 pandemic. And people say, well, that's not fair. It's the pandemic. Everyone did it. And, and that, that's, that, that is true. However, now, though, the um, the liberals, they're, they're in power now, right? The liberals? JT, yeah. no comment. <laughs> I actually do know they're in power, guys. But uh, <laughs> anyway, but the, the budget that's being floated by them, like they want to continually run budget deficits between 40 to $60 billion a year. And, you know, they're going to provide this, this, and that by doing it. However, remember, like, this was at zero just a few years ago. Now they want to try to run this, um, you know, to infinity, you know, and, and beyond. And the only way they can do that is by allowing the Bank of Canada to be a lot more flexible with, with what they're going to do. So um, Perfect. I, mean, I think that's what's coming up. What do you think, Steve? I mean, you're, oh, you're yeah, it's a pretty it's close a, to this it, as well. It's a perfect segue. Um to, I want to mention there was a, a video circulating went viral on Twitter here, which I uh, commented on, and it was uh, of Pierre Polyev. Again, I don't care what your political stance or leaning is, whether you like the guy or not. Uh, but he posted a video where he basically um, the government right now is is proposing. I think it's called Bill C two, which is basically they're trying to push through another seven billion dollars of spending, uh, calling it quote unquote you know COVID relief, etc. Um, and so Pierre, you know, posted this clip where he actually asked the top 10 uh, government officials, um, like, where the money was coming from for the 7 billion, right? It's all great to spend 7 billion, but where was it coming from? And there was not one person and this, it was actually quite entertaining. There's not one person that could answer where the money was coming from. So you have these politicians that are running the country. And I get it. I think we're going into an era, regardless of what you think, we're going to an era of massive fiscal deficits. Um, but it was just kind of ironic to see that nobody in parliament can actually, actually understands the sort of the financial system and where does the money come from? They just think, oh, it's great. Let's. And um, so, I mean, I kind of want to touch on that in terms of maybe educating the podcast here. Where is the like $7 million? Where is that coming from? Um, because it ties into kind of what we just discussed and the correct answer is that money gets essentially created out of thin air when the federal government issues debt, a bond. Uh, and these bonds, as Rich has pointed out in his data and his charts there, these bonds are increasingly purchased by the Bank of Canada, who is um, 
you know, a federal entity. So any interest payments that the Bank of Canada receives from the federal government, uh, they actually just remit them back to the government. So it's basically just like a long story short is essentially is an accounting trick, right? Um, it's that, keystrokes on a keyboard. Let's, let's keystrokes <laughs> on a keyboard. And so that's just kind of like, it's a basically just like this fictitious money that can again kind of comes out of thin air and so again it's kind of gets down to this mmt road which is that there isn't mmt basically argues it's called modern monetary theory and they basically make an argument that there is no hypothetical limit on how much a fiscal spending that you can do the only limitations they argue are inflation and they argue that you continue to basically do deficit finance, you know, basically financed by the central bank, because it's all just a bunch of accounting tricks. So, I got to add Keith, something to that MMT thing, which is, th there's always a break, right? So in in, nor in our circumstance right now, the break is central bankers print lots of money, sorry, uh, governments, whatever, they, they issue lots of debt, and whatever, if they're if it's bad, if they make bad decisions with that, the break is that interest rates rise. And it, and it basically forces the issuer of that debt to take pause. And with MMT, you say, well, what do you mean? They're going to print money forever and ever? Well, if you actually look up the, you know, if you actually look it up, the break is that they're supposed to raise taxes. Right. So when you create inflation and the economy is running hot, the way that you slow the economy down and in inverted commas is that you raise taxes, right? And, and then, but again... I just, for me, and why I continue to be really positive risk assets is related to this, because I just don't believe there's any will whatsoever to put on the brakes when push comes to shove. Um, I don't know, Keith, I just wanted to, sorry, Keith, take it away, but I just want to add that little wrinkle. No, I, I, again, I agree with that as well. I mean, on, on the fiscal side, like, so you're asking, like, where, where's the money going to come from? Um I mean, it's coming from tax revenues as well. I mean, you know, they're doing that sort of asset liability swap with the monetary and fiscal side. But again, taxes are going up across the country. Um, everything, whether it's like an income tax or you know, property taxes, which we touched on last week, user fees for this and that, it's going to go up. And I don't know how we stop it because that's that's where we're headed that's the only way that they can pay for these things i mean I, I know i know a few moments ago we talked about you know we had our election this year so we're probably going to go another few years before the next one however there's always the probability that one of the budgets does not pass so for whatever reason the conservatives and the ndps or quebecois or any other smaller parties you know, they do have an opportunity to try to change this. But of course, that will only happen based on, you know, their polling of their constituents to see, hey, is, is this, do people want to do this or not? Um, again, I go back to, you know, financial literacy in, in education. Most people are really not aware of what's happening at the federal level. So therefore, by default, you know, most most taxpayers, they don't care. Like they, they won't even, they're not even aware about, you know, this conversation that we're having and, you know, at, at the parliament level, you know, they'll, they'll talk about it, they'll banter it around everything, and then they'll, they'll push it through. So, um, yeah, can speaking anyway. of, can, which, I yeah. Some, can I just add a couple of things? One, just one, I think, the, the, you know, we're markets guys. And there's a reason I personally, I can't speak for you two, but there's a reason I care so much about things like inflation, things like deficits, because ultimately, if you have money, and you have real assets, it doesn't affect you. 
you're probably somehow, some way, probably better off. And if the government really tries to chase you down and raise your taxes, push comes to shove, you could probably move it to a different jurisdiction or whatever. But ultimately, things like inflation really help, uh, really, excuse me, excuse me, really hurt the working class. You know, you're never going to have sufficient wage growth to make up for the rise in the cost of living and the cost of those staples that you need to buy. And, you know, things like homes become completely out of reach. And I think that that's, you know, why it's a bug, it's a pet peeve of mine that running deficits in perpetuity is some kind of, you know, you're trying to save, you know, the working class, but ultimately you just, in my view, you know, when you make MMT and things like that, just make rich people richer. And, and, and I, that's why I, I always- I actually, yeah, no, I actually wanted to I actually have a question for you guys. Cause that's, that's been- more or less my view too, right? Is that you kind of run these deficits, massive deficit spending, all these like, you know, great look and look at me social programs that I feel like are intended to obviously help sort of the lower middle class, but I actually think end up impoverishing them further through basically asset price inflation. Um, so, right. So your, your housing gets more expensive here in Canada, right? I think that's where obviously all the sort of monetary juice seems to be going. So for example, I have a question, my question being like, one of the ones that I look at, the federal government came out and said, Oh, you know, we're going to do $10 a day childcare, which someone for myself, I'm kind of looking and saying, okay, well, you know, I'm probably gonna have kids here in the next couple of years. It sounds pretty good for me. Um, but I wonder like, and then you start to work the numbers backwards. Like if you have $10 a day, Childcare doesn't that just like basically give the average household just like more money, for example, or more savings to to bid up on like house prices, for example? Because like at the end of the day, you when you're buying, I always look and say if you're buying a, a property, you're just looking at like what your monthly outlay is. So if you're saying, well, I can only afford a four thousand dollar month mortgage because I've got two thousand dollars a month going to my kids' childcare. Well, all of a sudden, if your childcare is basically ten bucks a day. Or, or sorry, whatever, whatever works out to a month. Now you've just increased your capacity, your budget by $1,500. Where does that money go? Like it just go, it has to, it has to go somewhere. Like that increased savings has to go somewhere. And I think typically it shows up in asset prices. No rich. Yeah. I mean, for me, I just, I think it depends on the person. Obviously I think that there's definitely loads of people in Canada who, who for $10 a day daycare is it, it's, it's life-changing. Right, they can totally. go get a job. Um, you know, they can put my food on their kids' table, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, the fact that these things aren't means tested, I hope they are. I really hope they are means tested. Meaning, if you make a two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, maybe you shouldn't have access to ten dollar a day daycare. Just saying. <laughs> um, so I hope they're mean tested. Please correct us if we're wrong about that. Um, but in general, I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's always interest rates, you know, maybe I'm an, um, you know, that's, what I always go back down to ultimately $10 day daycare doesn't matter so much as whether interest rates are 5% or 2%, right? I mean, that's in, in my head, that's a, it ultimately is a rounding error. So that's the way I, I sort of look at it. I don't know if you guys have different views. I would agree, Keith. Yeah, I mean, the same thing, like I'm pretty broad level with it in terms of, you know, we say $10 a day, which from a political perspective, you know, who's not going to say yes to that? I mean, sure, it sounds great. <laughs> However, they're not telling us what, what, you know, what is the annual cost for this? And I have no idea. Is it 10 billion a year, 50 billion? One, 
I don't know what, what the cost is on it. I just think from an aggregate level, if, if we're going to continue to run these enormous budgets, 40 to $60 billion in deficit, which means they're spending more than they're collecting in taxes, you know, something got to give. If they're spending more in that market, then they have to spend less elsewhere. Do they take it away from healthcare, education, military, transportation, maybe the civil service, maybe? Higher tax collectors <laughs> the financial the financial crimes unit of the british columbia rcmp yeah something like that we have no time uh, no time to tackle uh no time to go yeah. after all the money laundering we only just it's easier just to target soccer dads that are writing off too much of their deductibles but again like if you think back to like for politically now though today i mean if, Political parties are extremely sharp, and that's how they pitch things. You know, ten dollars a day for this, you know, five bucks a day for that. It's just so hard to, you know, become. You become desensitized to all these new spending initiatives, and instead, if they go the opposite direction, hey, you know what? It's going to cost this, and we don't have the money for it, so we either raise your taxes by this amount. So if you want to pay like an extra eighteen hundred dollars a year in in taxes, and that'll give everyone free daycare. That, that's the question, you know, and, uh, but again, that's where they're headed. I mean, there are other ways to do it, of course, but again, it's not for us to say you should do it this way or that way. Again, we have to listen when the government is telling us this is where they're going to go. And as you pointed out, Steve, that they have to pay for it and whether they're going to do it through, you know, via the bank of Canada and, you know, they'll continue that as long as they can until, until they can't. And that's what I suspect will happen at some point. I mean, I was, up soon, but, but this is why it's so nefarious. This is why central bank buying 90% of the bond issuance is so nefarious. It takes away the trade-off signal. People are not aware that there's a trade-off. And the trade-off is if you are not running your government or properly in that you are being reckless with your spending or not being judicious with your resource allocation, either today or through time, your interest rates will go up because the market perceives you as a less, um, not qualified, but a less, credit worthy. Less, less credit worthy borrower. What the central bank buying 90% of the bond issuance has done is it is lying to you. It is basically the interest rate at one and a half percent is not the interest rate that reflects inflation at five and budget deficits at 10. And so you lose the signal telling you that you're not allocating your resources in a, let's just say, judicious way or a sensible way. And I think that what that, and it also provides, on the other hand, it provides you a signal if you're a homeowner or if you want to buy a home that you should borrow as much money as possible and lever yourself to the gills. And that's another negative signal. So it's, it, it's, it works bad for Canadians and other countries in two really bad ways. You don't, the government doesn't know it's doing a bad job. And it tells people that borrowing money beyond their means is a good thing, not a bad thing. That that's my two cents on that. I mean, I think we're going to get, uh, more round of taxes. I just was chatting with my accountant and it's funny because like, you know, 
they got rid of the income splitting for for business owners a couple of years ago. I, rumor has it they're looking at a couple other options, which you know I won't discuss in this show. But I actually, I mean, I think the principal residence exemption, I think that will stay in place in Canada. But I actually think that it's widely speculated. Like, because okay, you know, look at the, how the media is framing it up, right? And like the Bank of Canada is coming out now and saying, oh, these housing speculators are pushing up house prices it's not the fact that interest rates are stuck at zero but it's these housing speculators that are blowing the market up so now i think they've got the air cover if i'm trudeau i can say okay if you flip your home if you sell your home within five years you get no exemption for your primary residence i could see something like that coming in because it's politically palpable say well listen we're going to target the speculators if you buy and sell a home and say three or four years or five, you lose your principal residence exemption. Pretty easy to sell to the public. We'll see. Yeah, you know, I disagree. I don't think there should be any additional taxes for I, selling. I'm not your, saying that I'm yeah. making a proponent of that. Let's make that very, very clear. I'm just saying I think <laughs> that that's I think that's where they're going to go. Because if you're like, okay, we need to raise tax revenues, it's like it's so easy just to frame it as like, let's get those dirty speculators, which I don't actually think they're really speculators. It's just people's lives change and they have to move homes. Um, but I think that's an easy way for them to capture more tax. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't think that will pass at all. Because remember, everyone in Ottawa, they want to get reelected. You get elected and you want to get reelected. If you go back to your to your riding and you say, hey, you know, we're going to start taxing you on your primary residence if you sell it within three or five years. And I hear that, all of a sudden I'm going to say, I'm not voting for this guy. No way. I, I, I just think that's a really hard one to... to, to do I, do I smell yeah. a bet here? I, I'm going to bet you a box of Tim Biebs uh, <laughs> that within two years, I, I'll, I'll play it, say two years from now, I think they'll bring in something like that. Let's see. That, okay. a, box of Tim, a friendly box of Tim Biebs. Friendly bet. I think you need to buy them this year because I don't, I don't think they'll be out again with that marketing uh, campaign. <laughs> I'll put them in my freezer for you. A half-eaten half box of Tim Biebs. That's oh, why the, you know. That's why you know Pierre Polyev. He's got some good things. He's got some bad things. Who knows? Um, a bit too much of a too much showman for me. But he's got a, one thing absolutely right. Inflation is a is a stealth tax, right? I, I don't know which American politician from the 1800s said that, but uh, maybe Keith, you were there. Do you remember who said it? Um, but somebody, one of these guys, said the inflation is a stealth tax, and that's that's where I think a lot of it's going to continue to come. That's my that's basically yeah. But it's an view. economic yeah, it's an economic tax. And one thing that Pierre does extremely well, and maybe other guys up there are doing it, but they're just not as strong with the multimedia world for me to see it. He, he's asking the right questions. He's trying yeah, to guide exactly. the conversation to where it it should be. And when he asked these questions, you know, it just falls on deaf ears. So um, do you think that they don't care or they genuinely don't know? Or are they just I, stupid? I think it's, <laughs> I think it's, they generally don't know. Like, I think when he, like I said, when I think when he goes out and asks, hey, where's the money coming from? And nobody can answer. I think they're just, nobody actually knows. Yeah. Yeah. That's terrifying. <laughs> Well, you know, I've been well, that's inside why we have some, show. Yeah, that's why we have it. You know, I've been inside some pretty big companies like in the public, in the private sector. And, uh, you know, the, that question gets lost in, in that part of the world as well. 
so in, in the public sector, yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, the, the challenge with the public sector is that they're not running a P&L. So they're not running a profit and loss at the end of the day. Like they're, they're literally, it, it, it doesn't matter. It's all about, hey, we're going we're gonna to spend this money. Where should we spend it? Let's find out the best way to spend it or you know, who's going to get the most from spending it. Whereas the private sector, you know, we work differently. Okay, this is our revenues for the year. These are our costs. This is what, you know, our money is going to be left over at the end of the year. What should we do with that? Should we pay it out in dividends? Or should we reinvest it in, you know, in, in capital equipment? Or, you know, should we expand the workforce? And if we do that, do you hire more sales guys? Or is it IT? You know, again, we're trying to maximize profit. And we don't see that at the public sector. And that's why, you know, he'll ask these questions, you know, everything's, you know, it's a deer in headlights and they don't know the answer. They're not trying to hide it. They just don't know the answer. So, uh, you know, I, I, I empathize with them, but man, that's, that's a tough, that's a tough fight that, that he's taking on. I mean, there is one negative, right? You do, if you, if you can't provide sufficient housing for people and you have inflation at six and seven percent don't you eventually get revolution i mean <laughs> i mean I, you know i'm exaggerating a little bit to make the point but there's always a political cost eventually i think maybe the calculus they're making is that it's not gonna they're, they're gonna be retired with their full pension by the time it comes home to roost yeah but this is like like keith is just saying but like the the public sector is that you know if they were running a private business they'd be bankrupt many many years ago uh, and out of business, um, you know, we talk about, you just talk about housing and everyone's now saying, Oh, you know, the Canadian government, you know, we need, we need to put them in charge of, of building the housing and get them to, to, to solve the housing problem. It's like, dude, they, they created the housing problem. They're not going to like how you want them to go out and build all the housing. Like they're the, the most inefficient incompetent group of people you know it's it's all these like regulations and municipal hurdles and red tape that you have to get through just to get any sort of private sector housing built i mean that's that's the huge i mean gosh i'm going through a renovation right now in vancouver it's like three months to get someone to like give a stamp of approval to change a plumbing pipe is supply really that tight though steve i think it's a problem I, I really do. I, I I don't think it's as big of a problem. I think if if mortgage rates went from two percent today to four and a half, I, I don't think you'd be talking about a supply problem. But if you're in an era moving forward where, as we've talked about, where we're hooped, we're at this, we're in this debt trap where they can't raise interest rates. Uh, yeah, I guess you got it. You got the only way to sort of adequately, because you just have more and more people that are trying to become real estate investors and property investors because they're reaching for yield. So, so then I have a follow-up question. How can, you know, we've shown this chart before with the, you know, gross fixed capital formation, e.g. CapEx um, on residential is as a percent of GDP, it's the highest basically it's ever been as 10 or whatever percent. How can you square so much money being spent in theory, building homes and supply being as low or as tight as it is like i don't that's one part i don't understand at all i mean i think if you just look at vacancy rates if i look at uh obviously we're funding a lot of immigration population growth there the problem is is that it keeps going into vancouver and toronto and like in vancouver there's no capacity to build like it's it's so bad so i see it i see it very much from a very micro level 
Uh, but like I said, I still, I think, yes, the supply problem would not really be much of a discussion in my opinion, if, if mortgage rates doubled, um, because I think what you'd see is you'd see a lot of investors hitting, hitting, hitting the sell button and flooding the market with, with more inventory. But like I said, I think we're in an era here where rates are probably going to stay low for the foreseeable future. Yeah. You might have spikes here and there. Um, so I another real gonna, estate question. Yeah. My other real estate question is, you know, are the vacancy rates the same, like as low in places like Saskatoon, Regina, you know, Fredericton, um, I don't think, Gale, I mean, um, and the reason I ask that is because, you know, I know Canada has a history of saying, welcome to Canada. Come, come all ye Ukrainians running away from famine. You have to go and live in Manitoba. And if you go to Manitoba, everybody's blonde hair and blue eyes. You know what I mean? And, um, and so isn't a way of sort of Canada, Canada absorbing more immigrants. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but if you were like the housing czar of Canada would, I mean, would it make sense to say, okay, you can come to Canada, but you have to go to, um, you know, Western, uh, Eastern Quebec or Manitoba I, or Saskatchewan? I mean, I think it's something I would look at. I think the problem is, is everybody's pushback is that there's no real like jobs in those provinces, right? Like they're kind of like Keith, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, a lot of those provinces are just kind of like stagnant. I mean, what the whole thing with immigration is at the provincial level. So each province is given a quota. So it's not Canada's going to allow an X number of, of, of immigrants during the year and they can go wherever they want. If, if you're given Nova Scotia as, as your province, you're in Nova Scotia. I think you have to stay for a year, basically. Or, but you know, there's a lot of leakage. So if you arrive, uh, Rich, like in one of these one of these provinces or cities where you know you, you cannot get gainful employment, then you know you're you're, you're going to leak over you know to the larger cities, whether it's you know Toronto or, or Vancouver or somewhere like that to to better your life. But the entry point it, it is done on a provincial basis, and each province is provided a quota. That's the way it. That's the way it goes down. I mean, all I can say is that I think that, you know, Saskatchewan, Regina, Alberta, you know, Manitoba, they're not dealing with housing crises. There's, there's not, I mean, Alberta's home price has been flat for a decade and incomes are up. So it's like, it's actually more affordable to buy housing in, in Alberta today. It's just, the problem is I think it's all, all the growth in Canada seems to be funneling into BC and Ontario. Predominantly. I mean, we we have a housing crisis here in 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 Halifax. Yeah. We are. It's it. I'm telling you, it's like the gold rush. People are going. You know, they're just tripping over each other to to get a house, to get a home. What what's the reason and, for that? Is that just people coming in from like Toronto and Ontario saying, "Hey, I, it's pandemic. I can't work remote now. I'm going to go somewhere where it's a little bit cheaper. So let's go to Halifax." Uh, I think that contributes that contributes to it. But I mean, basically, it's the same story. You you have low financing costs, which makes it inexpensive. The supply is not very big. I mean, you have a house goes on the market here. People, everyone knows it's coming on the market on Friday. And like within 48 hours, they might have, you know, six to 15 offers on, on this house. So that's... I mean, we are it, seeing that everywhere, though. We're right? not close to clearing that market yet, right? That's, that's Moncton, New is. Brunswick? Uh, I don't know about New Brunswick that much. They've but, uh, they've had a huge boom, and a lot of it's just been people from Toronto saying, "Hey, I can pick up a house for three hundred fifty thousand 
And so those prices are up. I think they're up 40% over yeah, the last they are. year. Yeah. Um, I mean, even Alberta, even Calgary, for example, this has moved, you know, 12% over the last year, which for Calgary, 12% is, is, is massive. Um, Keith wrapping up here. We got to get Keith, uh, for his afternoon nap, but, uh, <laughs> no, we, we have dragged this on the loony hours, uh, you know, inflation here is going to push us up. So we're, we're going to wrap you know what that we up. Just, you know what we just did? We borrowed some minutes from the future. That's what we oh, I like that. I like hey, that. Thanks. Pull, hey, pulling it forward. How much did here. it cost? How much did it cost? <laughs> uh, 8%, 6%. Yeah. Keith's always good Well, for at least one boomer joke per episode. So. <laughs> Glad we tied it in at the end there. Um, all right, gents. Well, as always, it's been a splice. Uh, for the listeners out there, if you can give us a review, hit the follow button, give us, push us up in the uh, podcast SEO juice, so to speak. Be much appreciated. We're certainly seeing uh, more and more subscribers and and listens, so it's definitely encouraging. Trying to get the message out there, uh, and hopefully this reaches our elected politicians so we can uh, educate them <laughs> on how to properly implement some policy here moving forward. As always, we'll see you next week.